Hello and welcome to Naturally Curious. This is a show where I pick the brain of different cool people every episode. I'm Clayton Law, and today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by math professor Stefan Bilenio. Let's go way back, and I I know this like in your lecture you have said that you weren't good at math when you were a kid. That's very true. So it was not natural to you then, like it it was difficult. Uh. Well, in elementary school, th- th- I had a lot of trouble with arithmetic, in particular. And in, around grade two, I actually told my parents I was so frustrated that I had to give up taking math anymore. And my parents, much to my disgust, uh, informed me that that was not an option in grade two, and that I would have to take it for several more years. So, what changed from uh, hating math to now <sighs> being a math professor? Okay, so somewhere uh, I, I got to be good enough at handling things when algebra started happening that I started doing somewhat well in high school. And then in the last year of high school, it really kind of all started clicking together uh, when I was taking calculus, uh, of all things. Uh, and I started thinking it might actually be cool. And I needed to take uh, a lot of math because I was interested in doing science. So what happened in the end was that in first year, I took philosophy and computer science and mathematics and physics uh, courses because all of these areas actually looked at the problem of the question of limits to knowledge from different points of view. And that was what I was really interested in and still am. And unfortunately, most of them ruled themselves out. Philosophy, they had been going on on the same problems for two and a half thousand years. Uh, Computer science was extremely frustrating because it was part of the last group at the University of Toronto to be using punched cards, (laughs) right, to do programming in first year. (laughs) Uh, And they weren't maintaining the equipment anymore. And I wasn't learning anything new because I had taught myself all of that stuff uh, on my own in high school anyway. Physics was very frustrating because, unfortunately, the lab equipment was more sensitive, which meant it was more fragile, which means I looked at it and it broke. I wasn't good in a lab. Uh, and then the math courses the math courses were actually brutal. I took the highest stream of math courses that U of T had at the time. And my college advisor had said, you know, that with marks in only the mid-90s in high school, right, in, in the maths, that I should probably consider taking the next lower stream down. And, of course, I was cocky and didn't listen and took them anyway. And let's just say that my first test, I got... 14% on before the marks were raised, 15% all around because of a problem not having a solution because of a a typo. Um, Basically, after the first six weeks or so, it became apparent that I was in way over my head. And I didn't dig myself out of this before the end of the first term. So I was incredibly lucky that both algebra and calculus were actually full year courses. Uh, because after the Christmas exam season was done, I had accumulated 51% in algebra and 37% in calculus. Basically what happened was I turned into a mathematician to get out of first year alive because I was too proud to drop the courses <laughs> because my then girlfriend who read the writing on the wall um, actually did drop them and went dropped to the next lower level down. She wanted to do computer science. That was all she needed. And she was smarter than I was. <laughs> so You really weren't interested in math until you said 
grade 12 high somewhere school. on grade 13 actually I, oh uh, I, yeah grade yeah, 13 I, huh? i'm one of the old ones yeah. <laughs> so um but if you didn't like math back then what did you like like i'm saying between grade one to grade 11 you know that kind of like did you want to be like a baseball player no i actually player? wanted to be a scientist i i, I wanted probably to be a physicist because I had a granduncle who was a physicist and I didn't want to do anything like what my parents did which was uh, you know they did they had doctorates in the humanities and theology and history for my father and in uh, German literature for my mother and I really didn't want to be doing the same kind of thing just because it was too similar <laughs> okay um, by what time did you know that you kind of want to become a math professor Oh, okay. So I came to the conclusion that I probably wanted to go on in math uh, after first year, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, I ended up succeeding in, in those courses. Although, I mean, I, I, after that near disaster, I ended up getting, you know, like decent marks at the end. I had an A minus in calculus and a B in, no, it was an A minus in algebra and a B in calculus. And after that, I, I managed to uh, dig myself, you know, like I had a really good second year, right, you know, where I had marks that were all A's or, you know, in A territory one way or another. And consequently, um, you know, I felt I, I really could go on in this, uh, and I did, right. Uh, what was really interesting to me uh, in retrospect was that it wasn't until I was actually doing research in graduate school and at the same time, uh, you know, like working as a teaching assistant that I came to the conclusion that I actually like teaching it more than I like doing research. In it. Well, how long have you been teaching for now? Well, let's see. I've been at Trent for 27 years. Oh. I did some teaching each of the two years before that while I was a postdocing. And then I actually had lectured in, I uh, was a lecturer in four different courses while still a graduate student at Dartmouth College. So if you go back all the way, that's about 32 years now, plus another three years as a teaching assistant. Let's so, say 35 then. So call it 35, sure. Thir so right. you've been teaching for 35 years and you've obviously been like academia environment for longer than 35 years then. Yeah. <laughs> Do you get bored? Uh, now and again, I do, right? But the things that are actually really boring uh, are getting stuck on, you know, like trying to do problems that are I find interesting, but which are harder than I am, and which is unfortunately what happens with most of my research career. <laughs> well, we'll keep that in mind because so, I have some questions about that sure. later. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know, I one of the problems with being an academic uh, is the same as being any kind of teacher, you have a lot of donkey work to do, okay? And something, parts of that are not enjoyable. Dealing with administration is often not a great thing because there's paperwork and it's kind of pointless sometimes. And the other thing, the, the real bane of everyone's life is marking, <laughs> okay? I haven't met a whole lot of people who actually enjoy marking past the first couple of times they actually have to mark something. You have published two textbook was it am i right one on mathematical logic and another one on projective planes yeah i i haven't in, in a sense published them other than sort of you know releasing them on on the internet right with a free license but yeah how long did it take you to do uh, each one of them 
Well, the first cut at the mathematical logic textbook took uh, several months to write. I did that uh, during a sabbatical uh, early in my career, I think 94, 95, something like that, or 95, 96, somewhere in there, mid-90s. Uh, and I have since put out uh, various uh, improvements to it, I th but the last one was now about 15 years ago. Uh, so I guess overall that one took several years. Mm -hmm. Okay, The other one, uh, I think from start to finish, took several months again to do the first cut, but I only did uh, another year's worth of improvements or so before, you know, like leaving it alone. Uh, it turns out that I haven't been using it very much, so I haven't had much incentive okay. to improve it. Well, why, why did you write them in the first place? Because you said you'll enjoy teaching writing yeah, textbooks. I, I imagine it would be very different from teaching, actually. Well, I was teaching a mathematical logic course here at Trent uh, that, that I had developed right when, when I arrived, but there weren't any textbooks that I really liked for that, and so I decided you know, to basically write my own. Right. Okay. And something similar happened for the uh, uh, Projective Planes book uh, because we also have a course on Projective Planes and non-Euclidean geometry. And for the Projective Planes part, there wasn't anything that was compact so it uh, wasn't, to use. So, so you didn't write the textbook because you want to write them. Like it's not because you enjoy writing textbook. I don't enjoy writing. It's something that I have to do right from time to time. Uh, the rare cases where I enjoy it are where I get to, uh, you know, write some little comic poem or something, right? Or, or something that has an extended in joke, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I, I th things like that I, I occasionally enjoy, but they're really short little things that fit on a page, right? Mm -hmm. Typically, or if, and very rarely more. So, well, speaking of that, you're gonna write any more of those? Like uh, your opinion piece is mathematics a science? Um, I I haven't written anything more quite like that, uh, but I have written some modest little poems, including the uh, sort of uh, take on the, the lore's uh, the, the the I guess lore that Gandalf relates to uh, <laughs> Pippin on the ride to Gondor. Uh, where he goes over the rhymes of lore of how the Numenorians arrived, right? And, and the seven stones and all that stuff. Uh, and I wrote one that takes off on this and does a finite projective plane called the Fano configuration. <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, stuff like that. Uh, between 1996 and 1999, you hoisted things in uh, SC-137. Yes. Why? <laughs> it doesn't seem very useful. It doesn't seem very practical. Is it just for fun? Uh, it was basically for fun. Uh, it did serve a sort of useful purpose in giving the students something to be amused about, which tended to diffuse the tension in calculus classes, right? which is a useful thing to do because a lot of people are anxious. Uh, it also gave me something to do when they were writing quizzes or tests because I would build little mobiles out of cardboard cubes and string and things like that. Uh, and I did once, when I actually had an exam in that room, build a really huge mobile, right, which I saved up a lot of, you know, things for, uh, for several weeks beforehand. Um, but this kind of thing gave the students the idea that, you know, 
other thing the things should be hoisted <laughs> which was kind of <laughs> ridiculous but oh well um, can can you still do it nowadays uh you can the the uh cable and the hoisting uh arrangements are all still in that room and i do occasionally use it to uh hoist my book bag right up or something like that uh i know like professors and teachers are supposed to say oh there are no dumb questions there are no stupid questions but what is the dumbest questions you have ever received in class before? Oh, that's hard to decide. Um, I mean, there, there are these, probably the dumbest ones are the ones where, you know, somebody is having a brain fart and they're not seeing what's ex precisely in front of them on the board. And they ask, you know, well, like, how did this thing at the end of the board happen, right? And, you know, you, all you have to do is back up a step you know, or two on the board to see how that went down. And in many cases, what happened where it was that people were scribbling away and then they sort of looked at the beginning and they looked at the end and they sort of failed to look in the middle, right? Okay. That kind of thing. But that's not really a stupid question uh, so much as it is, you know, like, uh, I, I guess, brain sensory, fart. yeah, brain fart. <laughs> I imagine like there's no dumb question like what's negative one minus negative one okay so so that that kind of thing would be extremely rare say in first year calculus what is rather more common are people uh, botching algebra okay so i the next time somebody takes something that looks like one over a plus b and takes it apart as one over a plus one over b um I, i'm going to be tempted to dump their body in the river <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> but you know for 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 the one that you mentioned in particular right you know minus times minus makes plus the reasons why we don't discuss right <laughs> okay yeah actually speaking of things that we don't discuss why can't we divide by zero uh basically because there's no reasonable way for that to make sense okay uh zero got invented uh sometime in early medieval india right i mean the earliest I th mentions i think I, we have are in aryabhata's writings uh but they didn't really sort of start getting serious about working out the algebraic rules as far as we can tell until a century and some later when brahmagupta actually tried to make sense out of things like dividing by zero and didn't really succeed right so when you say uh, divide by zero will be undefined, yeah, basically. is it really just undefined in the lower level of math? No, it really is undefined. So it, it, <laughs> it really is undefined even yeah. for... Yeah, you, you, you can often make uh, sense of things, you know, like uh, as this expression, you know, uh, in the denominator approaches, zero, you know, zero, you know, th that, you know, the fraction goes to infinity or something like that. Uh, but that's really as close as you can get. Okay, I mean, if you're talking about the actual genuine zero, right, the one that absorbs everything when you multiply, dividing by it simply doesn't make any sense. Okay. Let's talk about coffee. Every, it seems like every single time you go into a lecture, you're holding a cup of coffee. No, sometimes I hold a can of pop with caffeine in it. How do you like your coffee? I like my coffee black. Okay, well, that's, that's very... That's very mathematician of you. Well, the, the late uh, Paul Erdős, uh, who was a great mathematician, commented that a mathematician was a machine for converting caffeine into theorems. And he had a point. You often make fun of physicists, engineers, and computer scientists. That kind of reminds me of how, how the Army make fun of the Navy, the Navy make fun of Air Force. Is it just like that? Just 
airplane fun? It, it, yeah, it is fun. I mean, uh, looks, I, my family is lousy with, other than teachers and things like that, it's lousy with engineers. Two of my three brothers are engineers, right? I, I have several cousins who are engineers. My uh, granduncle, the physicist, started out as an engineer, <laughs> you know, and so on. Uh, what I mean by it's lousy with engineers is that there are lots of them. Right? Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite number? 41. Why? Because it's the 13th prime number. And if you want to scare the people who are afraid of the number 13, and you want to do it in a way that they don't notice until you tell them, 41 <laughs> is the way to do it. <laughs> Speaking of prime number, uh, what is the point of keep looking for a bigger and bigger prime number? Uh, part of the point is to actually exercise computer hardware, uh, and part of the point is to find lots of big primes so that you can try to spot, you know, like the interesting patterns that primes may have that we don't know how to prove. Like, are there infinitely many twin primes where they differ by two, you know, like 41 and 43, okay? Um, and the fact is we don't know, and we don't know how to prove it one way or the other, okay? So far, eventually we seem to keep finding bigger and bigger ones, but... Does that go on forever? We don't know. So there are lots of works in math that based on the assumption that the Riemann hypothesis is true. What will happen if it's not? Well, if it's not, then people are going to have to go revisit that, right? All, all, all that stuff. Some of it will, some of it, in fact, has been shown to work, you know, in other ways, right? Uh, some of it may end up, uh, you know, having to be redone from scratch. Some of it may turn out to simply be wrong if the Riemann hypothesis is actually wrong. Okay, you know, it's really hard to predict for each individual thing. It's just kind of interesting to see their work that based on assuming the fact that something that is unproven to be true. Well, yeah, but that, that comes of, of, you know, things being a little bit uh, frustrating, right? The Riemann hypothesis is something that most people believe to be true. And on the other hand, uh, it's also something that is obviously extremely difficult to prove, at least so far it seems to that way. Consequently, uh, you know, if you want to sort of look beyond it, uh, you know, your choices are uh, go back and prove the Riemann hypothesis. Well, I don't know how to do that. Or use it, right? And hope like hell that someone else can manage to make it work. Right? So. Do you have a favorite mathematician? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, that's a really hard one. I, I guess I have uh, a small group that I uh, consider favorites. But probably my top two would be respectively Archimedes and Kurt Gödel. I've never even heard of the second guy. Okay, the second guy was uh, a mathematical logician in the in the last century. Uh, he died in the 70s, I believe. Uh, he's the guy who proved the incompleteness theorem for mathematical logic, which basically says that if you have, you know, like a reasonable machine checkable set of axioms and rules of procedure, then, and the system's powerful enough to do basic arithmetic, then it's not powerful enough to prove it has no contradictions in itself. Okay. Uh, and that is a, you know, real limitation on what you can actually do by way of trying to prove that mathematics is actually internally consistent. Okay. So there's a thing that I want to make it a, a recurring thing in the show. The idea is like how a lot of people have heard of big names like Gauss, like Newton, like Archimedes. But yet 
not a lot of people know exactly what they have done. Just like how um, when people say, oh, famous philosophers, oh, Plato, Socrates, what have they done? Oh, Plato did the cave thing. That's about the only thing I, I know about. And I'm like that when it comes to like other things that I'm not as familiar with. So I'm just going to say a few names. And can you quickly talk about, just briefly talk about what they have done in their lifetime? Well, insofar as I know that, right? Keep in mind that, you know, I, I don't know everything. So, Yes. Uh, I think a lot of people know what did Newton do. So let's skip Newton. Okay. <laughs> Although he did a lot more than most people are aware of. So. Well, of course. I mean, uh, what did Gauss do? Okay, what did, didn't Gauss do? The, the, the problem with Gauss is that he did just about everything, but he didn't publish. Okay, so Gauss uh, invented techniques for doing uh, computations of orbits, and out of that fell uh, a good chunk of modern statistics because that's where he found the normal distribution by looking at errors in astronomical observations. Uh, he did uh, a Normal distribution is the, the bell curve. Yeah, the bell curve. Yeah. Uh, he did massive amounts of uh, work in uh, various parts of algebra. He's the guy who uh, did an initial proof, although it turned out to be uh, slightly wrong. And then he did several more proofs in his life to make up for that, uh, that uh, over, the, over the complex numbers, every polynomial can be factored into linear factors. Okay. Uh, and that was like a massive advance in algebra. Uh, you know, it's now called the fundamental theorem of algebra just because of that, although it's something that most people aren't aware of, okay. Uh, he did massive amounts of work in number theory. He did, you know, like uh, modern number theory basically goes back to one of his books, Disquisitiones Arithmetica, if memory serves me. Uh, you know, he did all kinds of work in uh, geometry and non-Euclidean geometry in particular, which he didn't publish and didn't even mention to other people until other people had published, right, and so on, you know. People have said that if somebody asks you who came up with this math thing, you answer either Gauss or Euler, and you're probably right nine out of ten times. Well, you're 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 very likely to have that one of them worked on it, though whether they were you know like the key persons and whatever happened in in that area is another matter. Okay. And I've also heard that Gauss was the last person who knew everything about math of their time. Uh, it's a pretty good bet that he's probably the last person who could have said that he knew everything that was important, right, uh, in, in the field. But even he probably couldn't have claimed to know every little detail. People know Euler because of Euler's identity, e to the pi i plus one equals zero. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, okay, there are several different ways you can get at it. But basically, if you plug you know, instead of plugging x into the uh, infinite series for e to the x, you plug in i times x. What you get is the series for cos plus i times the series for sine, right? So you have a relationship via the complex numbers between two of the basic trig functions and the basic exponential function. And once you have that formula and you plug in pi in for x, right, cos of pi is 1, sine of pi is zero, right? So, sorry, no, cos of pi is negative one, my mistake. So I e to the i pi is equal to, right, cos of pi, which is negative one. And there you are, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, it's, kind of, it's, it's the, uh, what they call it, the most elegant formula. 
It, it's one of the very elegant ones. Uh, it it's actually was known before Euler. Uh, I think De Marvere already had that formula. Uh, so Euler's identity was not discovered by Euler. Uh, well, there are a lot of things named after people that are weren't discovered by them, but they're the ones who sort of made it popular. One of the reasons why uh, Euler, a lot of Euler's notation and, uh, and terminology and you know equations like that, have become associated with him was because he was one of the very few truly high-powered mathematicians who also wrote textbooks intended for ordinary mortals. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and he wrote pretty good ones, even if they're occasionally a little bit sloppy in how they do things. So, What are you working on? Uh, what am I working on? At the moment, I'm not working on very much. I have in the back of my head that I occasionally come back to uh, a problem in set theory and a problem in uh, projective geometry, respectively. But they're both things that I have been cracking my heads on, or my head on, I suppose, because I only have the one. Uh, <laughs> for a couple of decades, right, you know, with uh, at best marginal progress. So, uh, but, you know, the, while I'm having a really busy teaching term, I only occasionally get to come back to them so at best right i have questions about doing math in higher dimensions it's already hard for somebody to imagine three dimensions because we we, we write stuff on a piece of paper and a piece of paper is two-dimensional yeah it, it, so it, think really thinking in three dimensions is harder than it looks right can is it even possible, is it even physically possible for someone to imagine four-dimensional uh, four dimensional space? Oh, it, well, I, I think what you're really asking is whether it's mentally possible. And the short answer is yes, but with enormous amounts of effort. Uh, the reason why people you know, invoke abstraction and mathematics so much is so that they don't have to put in the kind of effort that's needed to do that kind of visualization. Now, in the 19th century, there was an Anglo-American, he emigrated from England to the States, a uh, mathematician named Pierce, who developed techniques for training yourself to visualize things in four and five dimensions. And then he taught them to his kids, which I think was probably cruel and unusual. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not sure, I don't know how the kids reacted to this, but I probably wasn't terribly well, would be my guess. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, uh, people who work a lot in like uh, that kind of in four dimensional and five dimensional kind of space and somebody, for example, who works in general relativity a lot where would be used to doing that uh, would likely develop a certain degree of, you know, intuition even without going through a training regime like that. Right. So they would effectively be able to visualize it. A lot of people who work in areas like that nowadays uh, rely a lot on uh, computers, right, generating projections that are, you know, useful to them, right, of, of this kind of stuff. Uh, so, for example, the people who look at minimal surfaces, right, uh, do a lot of what amount to experimental work by, you know, like throw up some kind of wireframe on the computer and then have a computer work out, you know, uh, some soap bubble, right, that interconnects, right, the, the, the different parts of the frame. And people have found uh, entirely new classes of minimal surfaces that way. Um, but that's a really, really different kettle of fish, right? Uh, 
uh, from actually being able to you know fully visualize what you need to do that because that's an optimization problem that if you truly visualized it would actually be happening in higher dimensions right because you're graphing something that has three dimensions of input in a higher dimension and then taking a look at that right so. do you get asked for help from physics student um, I, I, I do that I do get that every so often uh, the most common example actually in recent years has been uh, with students who are interested in learning the math behind general relativity uh, I've been on a actually fairly regular basis the last three four years I've been offering a course uh, as a reading course on calculus and manifolds which is basically doing calculus in higher dimensions on surfaces which have curvature right okay which is what you need uh, for general relativity in the low dimensional cases, okay? <laughs> uh, but, uh, and the problem is that the physics department really uh, doesn't have anybody who does general relativity at the moment, okay? And consequently, it's hard to sort of, for them to go and learn that material on their own. So they need to take a course on that, okay? When was algebra invented? Well, that depends on what you mean by algebra. Uh, if you mean by algebra, you know, like being able to solve problems that we solve by algebra, uh, then we have to go back to ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia, right? You know, where people 4,000 years ago, uh, you know, knew how to uh, do solve various problems like, you know, uh, X plus, you know, uh, X over 7, right, is equal to, you know, 30, they would be able to solve that kind of thing for X to whatever approximation you want it. I mean, there are problems very similar to that uh, on ancient papyri and ancient cuneiform tablets. On the other hand, if you're th talking about like uh, algebra done with symbolic notation and manipulated using that symbolic notation, uh, probably the beginning would have to be the algebraic shorthand that got invented by Diophantus, who was a, a mathematician in Alexandria who lived about 250 AD, give or take about a century. <laughs> okay, we know very little about him. And in his Arithmetica, which is mostly about solving uh, equations and integers and uh, rational numbers, he actually had developed a notation to express simple kinds of equations. So up to, you know, like cubic equations in one variable uh, using a kind of shorthand notation. And that's the first real cut. It's something like algebra in a form we would recognize. So before that, people didn't use variable like x and y. No, yeah, so they 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 would throw around right, you know, uh, words like unknown, right, oh. you know, or desired quantity or something like that, right. So it must be very hard for ancient Greek to prove something because everything is much longer, much harder to write it out. Okay, well, most of the context in which proof got introduced into mathematics was in geometry rather than. Uh, in uh, anything that had algebra, algebra or numbers attached, okay? Uh, and it took a little while before numbers started getting attached to that, in fact. Uh, so for example, we, th we tend to think of a right angle, right, as being you know, 90 degrees, so we have a number attached to that. But to an ancient Greek geometer, especially near the beginning, a number would not have been attached to that because a uh, right angle was when two lines met perpendicularly, so it was half of a straight angle, if you want to think of it that way, right? There's no number there, okay? Are there any proofs or theorems 
from that period of time that would have looked different back then? Well, the obvious example would be the Pythagorean theorem. I mean, we tend to think of that, okay, you've got a triangle with sides of length A, B, C, right? If it's a right triangle and the right angle is between the sides of length B and C, then what that's telling you, right, is that A squared is equal to B squared plus C squared. Okay, the way an ancient Greek would have thought of that, and if you actually look at the diagrams in Euclid, if I think it's Proposition forty-six or forty-seven, somewhere in there, uh, in Book One, the way they would have thought of that is you actually have a right triangle, and on each side you attach a square, right, which has a uh, which has sides of that length so you have this kind of petal formation right of three squares around a triangle uh, and then what you actually do is you do some kind of argument to show that the two smaller squares have a combined area that's equal to the larger square euclid's is particularly less than transparent there are much better arguments that other people invented so so I was watching a video about how we should communicate with aliens if they were to contact us. Well, obviously English won't work, any language won't work, but math is universal, so we can say 2 plus 2 is 4 in a way where everyone can understand, like putting two dots and two dots together makes four dots. Mm -hmm. And people suggest using the Pythagorean theorem because it is an advanced concept yet extremely easy to show because of what you just said. Yeah. Can you give me another theorem that is easy to show, yet quite advanced? I, I would probably cite prob one of what is very likely the earliest result that had a proof, although we don't know what the original proof was anymore, and that's Thales' theorem, right? Which is that if you uh, take a circle and you draw a diameter, and you pick any other point right somewhere on the circumference of the circle and you connect it to the two ends of the diameter that you make a right angle. Oh, when, when was this proof? Uh, so this result, according to later commentators, was proved by Thales of Miletus probably around 600 BC. So this can be another theorem we can use to <laughs> communicate with aliens. Stefan, thank you for thank you very much for joining me for this episode. It's been a pleasure having yeah, you. Yeah, it's been fun uh, doing this. I look forward to listening to myself. <laughs> Until the next discovery of the largest prime number, stay curious. This is me when editing for this very first episode. Thank you, everyone, for sitting through all the mistakes I made during the interview and all the mistakes I made in editing. I promise, come back next week for episode two and it will be much, much better. Thank you.